This is Macro Horizons, episode 57, Long Bondzilla, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of February 24th. And if 30-year yields fall to their lowest, and no one's there to sell it, does it still make a sound? views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. Record low 30-year yields. Yeah, it is amazing. That is one of the defining takeaways from the week just past is that 30-year yields managed to decline to record levels at a point in which the only real drivers behind the price action were the ongoing coronavirus headlines. Well, that's not entirely accurate because we did see a mixed series of global PMIs on Friday during the overnight session. And then, of course, the U.S. PMI disappointed This effectively served to reinforce the idea that the uncertainties created by the coronavirus will eventually hit the real economy. We've been discussing the prospects for the outbreak to ultimately lead the Fed into action, and that's the biggest question right now. It's not whether or not the real economy is going to be hit, because it's pretty clear, at least on a global scale, that there will be some repercussions from the viral scare. Will that be enough to ultimately get the Fed back in play sooner rather than later? Our baseline assumption is that the Fed really does want to maintain monetary policy in its current steady state as long as they can. As was the case when the Fed was hiking, they continued hiking rates until something broke. Very similar dynamic is at play in the current situation. Powell will want to keep monetary policy unchanged as long as he possibly can. If for no other reason, then when the Fed ultimately does have to move, it's not going to be at 25 basis point increments. It will be 50 or 75. And in practical terms, that means that they'll very quickly run up against the effective lower bound. Once monetary policy is at the effective lower bound, then QE, real QE, not QE, but real QE will be on the table once again. That will have a limiting impact on how far the curve can re-steepen. We continue to believe that the next 75 basis points in twos tens will be steeper and not flatter. However, if 10-year yields go into that scenario at 140 or even record lows, so anything at 130 or below, it becomes a lot harder to anticipate the degree of steepening which has characterized prior shifts in monetary policy. This week also offered further evidence that the domestic economic data is not the driver behind the recent price action in the Treasury market. Most notably, we did see stronger housing data cycle highs in the case of building permits that was largely ignored. 
So it's also consistent with a transition that is underway, whereby investors are looking at pre-virus data differently than they are post-virus data. In fact, the best investors can hope for at this moment is to see the early impact of the viral scare on the real economy. And arguably, we've seen that process already start to play out as the virus was cited as one of the underlying reasons for the weaker PMI releases on Friday. So guys, two handle tens, off the table? Not quite yet, but it just got a lot harder. In conversations that we've been having, it seems pretty clear that if one's buying target for tens was at, call it, 194 in the middle of January, that's been revised down to 185, then 175. And now at this point, people would be content to buy a dip at 165 to 168. Now that doesn't mean that that will be the extent to which any bearish price action will take the market, but that certainly does identify an important line in the sand in the event that we do see a backup in rates. Conceptually, a modest sell-off is very consistent with our broader take on the market in keeping with the range trading thesis. What becomes more fascinating is what about the lower bound? We came into this year thinking if the treasury market followed the historic patterns and tins held a 100 to 125 basis point range, that both 2% to 225 as well as 1% would be on the table for tins. Now, if the upper bound of that range really is what we saw in January, call it 194, 195, then all of a sudden a dip well below 1% wouldn't be inconceivable for tins. Zero handle? Zero handle tins. From a fundamental argument, the data at least still kind of supports the idea that we might see two handle tens. If you look at the economic surprise index, it's at a two-year high. We've seen some pretty solid data releases, both on the inflation side in the past week, PPI, as well as the real activity side, both the Empire Manufacturing and Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing indices were pretty strong. In fact, the Philly Fed is up to its 99th percentile over the past 30 years, and it was one of the biggest jumps that we've seen in decades. So the argument that going into 2020, we'd get a lagged stimulative impact of a phase one trade deal and the Fed's 75 basis points in insurance cuts is actually playing out in some ways in the hard data. The problem, of course, is the lingering question for everything right now is how bad is the consequence of the growth slowdown in China due to the coronavirus going to be? So Really, all that we can say is, hey, data's been pretty solid to start 2020. Not obvious at all that's going to continue. Well, we might not have got the two-handle tins that we were expecting in the first quarter, but the market did conform to our bias to see a cyclical re-steepening of the curve. At least for one day. Oh, but point in fact, that has been a important characteristic of the price action in the treasury market over the course of the last several weeks. That is, we're back to the mode where a curve flattener is a policy error trade, suggesting that the market believes the Fed is going to be too slow to react to what is going on with the global economy. And the flip side has been moments of re-steepening have been largely a directional trade. At the moment, we're still in the range. Two's tins is not inverted. Three-month bills versus tens, however, is inverted. And as the Fed's favorite yield curve-based recession indicator, it's clearly brought recessionary concerns back on the table. Is there a risk we're approaching the point when 
the curve flattening trade no longer becomes a directional one. And what I mean by that is where rallies in outright terms translate to flattening, whereas sell-offs are steepening. Will we see a pivot in that regard in the coming month, the coming two months? I should hope so, but that really comes down to the Fed. If the Fed makes it clear that they are in play and there's a possibility that they deliver a rate cut sooner rather than market has priced in, then investors will be eager to buy the front end of the curve at current yields. One other aspect of the current market pricing that is worth exploring is the amount of easing reflected in Fed funds futures. When the Fed was tightening and we attempted to read the proverbial tea leaves, we would look at the number of basis points priced in for a particular period and just divide that by 25, assuming that any rate hike would be 25 basis points. Even when the Fed was preemptively easing, we could use the same logic. At this point, however, that methodology quickly starts to break down. If the Fed is forced to cut, they're going to do it in 50 or 75 basis point increments. So in practical terms, if we see 14 basis points of easing priced in the July contract, that doesn't imply a 50% probability that the Fed cuts. It implies something closer to a 33% probability that the Fed is spurred into action. All this talk about the Fed cutting leads me back to a large discussion that was detailed in the most recent minutes. Certainly, there are downside risks. The FOMC gets that. Investors get that. We really do have an inverted path of policy from here. But what I was intrigued by in the minutes discussion was the focus on financial stability risks. It almost seemed like they were trying to build an intellectual argument for maybe returning to hiking rates to stop the buildup of any financial excesses. It doesn't necessarily seem like that's fully taken hold on the committee, but the concept that they're even open to the idea of hiking without achieving their inflation mandate is actually a bit different from what they've said in FedSpeak over the past few weeks. This certainly doesn't mean that they're going to hike at any moment, but it does introduce the possibility that we might get a little more hawkish signals from the Fed if elements of irrational exuberance, beyond what we're arguably already seeing, begin to assert themselves in the equity market, corporate bonds, or other pockets. John, I think that's a totally fair point. And at the bare minimum, from an intellectual perspective, it makes a lot of sense that the Fed would want to avoid bubble risk. However, one thing I would flag is that at the January FOMC, the developments around the coronavirus and the potential economic impact have certainly accelerated since the last Fed meeting. Well, there's also another nuance, for lack of a better characterization at play. And John, you've mentioned this as it relates to the Fed's current bond buying, QE versus not QE. It's also important for the Fed to level set the market's expectations because if and when they do need to cut rates, if the market had been assuming that there was no chance or that they were leaning a bit more hawkishly, then the impact of that on the market in the very front end will be more relevant. Again, the marketing slash branding of that aspect is not quite as important as it is for QE, but nonetheless, that has to be something on the minds of the hawks in the committee. I think that logic also works very, very well flipped on its head. We currently have the market pricing in more than one 25 basis point cut this year, we currently have an inverted front end of the curve with the market clearly and increasingly confidently biased to see cuts. The risk being if all of a sudden, say, things on the coronavirus front are a little less ominous than feared, we could get a wave of hawkish Fed speak 
just to try to flatten out the expected policy path. They wouldn't even necessarily move to a hiking bias, but given that current financial conditions are predicated on pricing some cuts, that communication effect could be a bit of a hawkish impulse, at least versus current market pricing. Now, one might hope that that hawkish impulse would translate into a sell-off further out the curve, two-handle tins still being on the table. But I think in reality, what we would see is that exaggerate the flattening that's been in place. So a hawkish tilt to incoming Fed speak at this point will most likely invert the curve rather than reintroduce term premium. And in my mind, the way that would play out would be something reminiscent of Q4 2018, at least in terms of directionality, if not in terms of scale. Any perceived quote-unquote hawkishness, even if it's not hiking, would quickly trigger worries in risk assets and likely lead to a pickup in volatility, tightening in financial conditions, and then the Fed is once again sort of backed into a corner. And in keeping with some of the bigger questions that we've been hearing from clients over the course of the last several weeks, one that has come up, and it's very apropos, is has the Fed managed to paint themselves into a corner responding so readily to modest sell-offs in the equity market? Eventually, the end game seems pretty straightforward. Think Bank of Japan. If every time equities sell off, financial conditions tighten, and that leads to Fed action, eventually the Fed will run out of rates to cut, transition into QE, and start more aggressively building the balance sheet. That's very consistent with what we saw in Japan, and the real risk is that there's not the political will on the FOMC or in Washington in general to sustain a material correction in stocks. So that means stocks can only go up, right? Well, as long as Powell and company are committed to the current framework, it certainly suggests that there's limited downside risk for equities. That doesn't mean that they can only go up. And within the equity market, there's going to be sectors that outperform and there's going to be sectors that underperform. It'll be interesting to see how the fallout from the coronavirus plays out certain sectors, consumer durables, consumer retail, and their related supply chain issues seem pretty vulnerable, whereas a lot of the baseline domestic industries should be reasonably okay. One of the primary concerns that I have is globally, there will be a degree of lost consumption. Given the travel restrictions, the airlines are going to be hurt. Given the fact that people are less willing to go into public places implies that certain parts of the service sector will be hurt. Restaurants and prepared food come to mind. And if one doesn't venture out for three or four weeks, once one does, they won't make up for lost eating. Just to put some numbers around this, some of the largest American multinationals have upwards of 10-15% of their revenue coming out of China. So whether this is a one-off hit in Q1 that translates to more spending in Q2 or in the dynamic you pointed out where the hit in Q1 isn't fully rebuilt is going to be core. More generally, when I think about the equity market, a framework we've talked about in the past is if you look at the earnings yield, so the inverse of the P.E. ratio versus call it the 10 or 30 year treasury yield, you get a sense of the equity risk premium. Right now, the equity risk premium actually doesn't look crazy stretched, but it's not obvious that it should be average or somewhat normal given the potential major consequences of the coronavirus. So is it possible that we see a pullback in stocks as Q1 earnings guidance and reports start to come out? 100%. Absolutely. 
Ian, the big question is, will the Fed try to move in an insurance form ahead of these kind of developments? Will they wait until after? Or will they try to look through the Q1, Q2 noise resulting from the coronavirus? Where exactly is the Powell put? Well, I think we can all say with a straight face, if the equity market sold off 30%, the Fed would react. If the equity market sold off 25%, the Fed would react. If the equity market sold off year-to-date 10%, probably not. So it's somewhere between 10 and 20%. And I suspect that at the end of the day, it has to do with the speed of the move rather than any outright level. So if we slowly grind lower over the course of the next eight to nine months, the Fed's not going to do anything. If we see stocks drop by 15, 20% over the course of two or three weeks, that will shake a lot of the Fed's conviction as to how healthy the U.S. economy currently is. It seems that there are a variety of things that are all going to converge in Q2 this year, one of which certainly is we'll get better data and information on corporate impacts or economic impacts of the coronavirus. But lingering in the background, I'd also point out that the Fed has given guidance that they're going to taper their bill purchase program and get out of the term repo injections entirely. I certainly don't believe that it's a traditional QE program, but there are a lot of people who do. If you have the combined not QE taper with some of these negative earnings releases, it could be a situation similar to call it Q4 2018, where a combination of disparate factors leads to a dynamic where the impact is greater than the sum of the individual parts. So that brings up the age old question. What happens when you combine an insomniac, a central banker and a rate strategist? Someone who stays up all night pondering if it really is QE or not QE. That is the question. In the week ahead, Treasury investors will continue to grapple with questions about the fallout from the coronavirus. But within that backdrop, we will receive a couple important pieces of information, not least of which being the Consumer Confidence Board print on Tuesday. Now, this is February's data. And it does reflect at least some portion of the change in sentiment in the wake of the viral outbreak. Whether confidence falls off sharply or simply treads water remains to be seen. However, this is an important indicator given the correlation between confidence and consumption and the importance of consumption to the overall GDP profile in the U.S., We also get January's personal spending figures, which will help further augment the information about the overall health of domestic consumption. Let us not forget durable goods. Again, January information, and it will give us a indication of business spending in a post-phase one environment. Recall that business spending and CapEx as a theme has been a drag on real GDP, and so any shift in that dynamic will be notable. On the flip side, as estimates for real GDP growth in the U.S. continue to be in that 1% to 1.5% range for the first quarter, any incremental piece of information that challenges that baseline assumption will be meaningful. We also get Treasury Supply Focused in the front end, we have twos, fives, and sevens as well. But with the backdrop of a number of open questions on the monetary policy front, it will be informative to see how twos and fives are taken down in this environment. Outpaced demand would indicate, at least on the margin, investors are anticipating the Fed will be prompted into action sooner rather than later. Or, alternatively, a 
strong bid for front-end supply is consistent with our baseline assumption that when the Fed moves, they're going to move at a 50 or 75 basis point pace rather than the 25 basis points that we saw in 2019. Our earlier ambitions to see a pickup in foreign demand at the Treasury auctions have yet to come to fruition. In fact, it still largely remains a domestic affair, particularly in the front end. Once again, there will be a point at which foreign buyers simply throw in the towel and choose to scale in in a classic rate market FOMO moment. Suffice it to say, we'll be watching the lower end of the trading range in 10s and 30s as it's defined or challenged over the next several trading days. Momentum continues to point toward lower yields. However, in 30s at least, stochastics are extended well into overbought territory, which in a normal environment would suggest a moment of consolidation, if not a technical reversal. It goes without saying that the current market trading conditions are not typical by any means, and with the backdrop of the broader repricing that's currently underway, we could easily envision overbought conditions becoming even more overbought as the week plays out. Also keep an eye on the shape of the yield curve, uh, three-month bills versus tens already inverted, the depth to which that inverts further will quickly become troubling to monetary policy officials. Twos, tens, whether it inverts this week or next, is largely a moot point. A, it already has during this cycle. B, investors are content to simply interpret it as a policy error or a non-policy error trade, depending on the Fed's willingness to respond to the developing uncertainties related to the global economy. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as Leap Day quickly approaches, we're lamenting what has truly felt like the longest February ever. Well, at least in the last four years. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to
to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.